This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. Monday, 5 p.m. in the city of London. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Um, It's Whip Monday, and basically that means most of Europe is closed, which means the volume has been spectacularly low here in Europe. I think you can basically just park today's session, which, to be honest, drifted sideways, picked up a little bit towards the end. London outperforming a little bit, up by around half of 1%. With the price action in Europe... Not really that useful. Commodities have started to come back a little bit. Alex, that's your cue to pick up and tell me what's happening stateside. Uh, yeah, so thanks. There's some stuff happening stateside. Um, Excellent. Here. <laughs> there really uh, isn't here. But, really, but there's really not that much here. I mean, we a uh, guy called it Mushy, or I said Mushy Monday, and then I realized that should have been my title for the whole show. Uh, tech outperforming. We've seen this movie before. NASDAQ up by you know 200 points. We're up 1.5%. Uh, tech outperforming. You still have a bid in the bond market. The dollar weaker. It's kind of a buy everything thing. I mean, you see tech rising and then also a yields falling. That doesn't really do well for a 60-40 portfolio when that reverses, but um, it does feel like we're looking for a bit of a catalyst. It's the week into Memorial Day weekend. I would be surprised if we see some really strong volume, but, you know, usually when I make those calls, I'm wrong, so we could probably get crazy action in the next couple of days. Who knows? Last few times we've said, what a boring session. We hope something exciting is going to happen. It generally okay. has the next day. I've so never prepare said for that. a little bit of volatility. That was you. That was always okay. you wishing for stuff, and then the Bitcoin thing happened. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to just be calm. To cruise through this week. No, exciting things need to happen. Uh, we're going to talk about space later on. Alex's favourite subject. Mm. Um, she won't go. I'm very happy to. Charlie Pellet, I'm good. sure, would definitely go into oh, space. Oh, Charlie Pellet would definitely go without into space. A, without a doubt. I mean. As long as it lands in the UK and takes off in the UK, it's even a bonus. And of course, Guy and Alex, as long as I got frequent flyer miles for making the journey to. <laughs> Here's what's going on in terms of headlines. Europe and America are reacting with outrage after Belarus ordered a Ryanair Holdings flight transiting its airspace to land and then arrested a journalist on board, an unprecedented violation of European air travel protocols. The European Union is considering further sanctions against President Alexander Lukashenko's administration as its leaders meet in Brussels for that two-day summit. And today, Transport Secretary Grant Schapp said, quote, following the forced diversion of a Ryanair aircraft to Minsk, I've instructed the UK Civil Aviation Authority to request airlines avoid Belarusian airspace in order to keep passengers safe. Shaps also says the operating permit of Belarusian airline Belavia has been suspended. The UK's top cinema chains say big audiences for films from Peter Rabbit to The Runaway to Nomadland point to a strong emergence from lockdown and show the enduring appeal of movie theaters in the streaming era. Cineworld Group says UK ticket income on the first weekend back was above its expectations, led by the success of the kids' action comedy inspired by the book from Beatrix Potter. View Cinemas said performances surpassed its expectations with 40% of sessions selling out. And more than half of workers in London's financial districts may now be traveling back into the office the most since lockdown measures began easing in the UK. This according to rising sales of 
tuna baguettes, and lattes, but not just on Mondays or Fridays. The Pret Index, based on exclusive data from sandwich chain Pret-a-Manger, shows business in areas where banks, corporate law firms, and asset management companies count hundreds of thousands of desks is inching back toward normality. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back over to you now in London. I've never really had Peter Rabbit down as an action hero. but Yeah, I don't really see that. i got to be honest with you. Uh, we got to catch the movie. Catch the rabbit. I'm yeah. actually thinking about going to a movie on Memorial Day weekend. Are you really? I, I don't it. know if I'm ready to go back yet. I, Haven't committed. Yeah. Uh, getting on an airplane, no problem. Sitting next to a stranger. Going to a movie theater, sitting next to a stranger. That's perhaps a different uh, different thought altogether. And that says a lot about Charlie Pellet, I think. Yeah, it does. Let's just leave it right there. Yeah. The movie would have to be spectacularly good. Or about the UK. Uh, or about the UK. Um <laughs> Let's talk about one of the stories that Charlie, thank you, Charlie, that Charlie was talking about there. The Civil Aviation Authority within the last hour has announced that it is going to withdraw uh, Belarusian aviation licenses, i.e. if you're a Belarusian carrier, you will not be able to fly into the UK. Uh, and also saying that carriers from the UK should avoid Belarusian airspace. Follows another, a number of other countries doing similar things over the last few hours as well. Uh, and this evening, uh, we're going to see a leader summit in Brussels. The first time they're meeting in person, I think since December. It's been quite a while since we had one of these leaders' summits in person, and they certainly will be discussing the forced uh, landing of that Ryanair flight over the weekend. Joining us now to preview what we can expect, Bloomberg's Maria Tadeo. Maria, what what kind of action do you think we are likely to see? Well, Guy, look, right now what we know is that diplomats in Europe are debating a full package, so not just individual sanctions for individuals, but as something that is more comprehensive. And that could look like uh, shutting the airspace in and out of Belarus. That could also mean that on-the-ground access to the country uh, could be also implemented and further sanctions on members of the government. What we know, however, is that this is already a, a country that's very much sanctioned by the European Union. In fact, this would be the fourth package of sanctions in a year. So they want to send a message that is uh, strong, that's for sure. There's real shock in Europe. I can tell you many of the uh, officials have spoken to today say this is incredibly dangerous. It sets a very, very dangerous precedent to have a plane with people inside, more than 100 um, passengers that could have been in a, in a very serious situation had something gone fully wrong. And then almost this, this move that it's now very clear designed to apprehend and arrest an opposition member to send a message of terror to anyone that opposes Lukashenko is very serious. But again, on the flip side to this, is they're also very aware that if you isolate Belarus further into Russia, then essentially you're looking at something that looks like Crimea 2.0 and annexation into Russia. Uh, Maria, we really appreciate your reporting. This is definitely not over. Um, Maria Tadeo joining us uh, from Brussels. Uh, Guy and I also spoke to Willie Walsh, Walsh, uh, IATA Director General, uh, about this and said, you know, will the consumers and companies just be the ones end up paying for it if they have to divert around Belarus airspace? You would see airlines have to avoid the airspace, which could be complicated because there are other areas of airspace around there that are closed or that airlines have been recommended not to travel through. But I think the important thing is we we do have to strongly condemn the actions of the government of uh, Belarus. You know, what they did on Sunday, intercepting a commercial civil aircraft, clearly put the passengers and crew of that aircraft at risk and forcing them to divert is uh, unacceptable behaviour by any government. And we, we have to call this out. We need to ensure that the facts behind this are understood 
and to take steps to ensure it cannot happen again. What is IATA's message to its members? Well, it's very important, Guy, that each individual airline assess the risk uh, associated with their operation through this airspace. Um, it is different for each airline, and they will be guided initially by the security um, information that they get from their own people and from their government. Uh, clearly, they will, will take it, direction. Yeah. From Isn't that a problem, though? Because, because individual airlines... It is a massive challenge for them to make decisions on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, I remember when it was Ukraine and the, we saw an aircraft downed by a missile system. Uh, airlines had to make decisions that were really, really difficult. Isn't this something that is a competency of governments or regulators that they should be saying yes or no? Do airlines have the skill set to be able to manage this kind of risk? Yeah, many airlines do, Guy, but not all airlines. And it's a very important point. And you're quite right to highlight the important role that regulators play. So in Europe, uh, airlines will be looking to the guidance issued by EASA, the uh, safety agency of, of Europe. Uh, outside of Europe, they'll be looking to their own uh, regulators and indeed sharing information with the regulators from around the world. So it's important that as much information as possible is made available. That was the IATA Director General, Willie Walsh, the former CEO of IAG, which uh, owns British Airways, uh, talking to Alex Steele and myself a little bit earlier on. He talked about this piece of airspace, airspace being very important. So this is a big challenge uh, for the carriers. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Well, today in D.C., uh, you have some individuals in the investment banking world that have to deal with SPACs, direct listings, IPOs. Uh, they're going to be headed down to D.C. for some questioning uh, in that space and how better to monitor issues like an IPO pop or what happens with the SEC, excuse me, uh, SPACs when it comes to the sponsors that get a nice 20% no matter what happens uh, to the underlying asset. So what does this actually mean? This is the House Subcommittee on Investor Protection. Um, Shanali Basic is joining us now. She's Bloomberg's Wall Street reporter. And I find this interesting as I feel like some of Wall Street trying to get ahead of potential regulation when it comes to SPACs, and Europe in some ways is already doing that by changing some of the sponsor issues. And I wonder if you could like talk us through this issue. Yeah, the, the sponsor issue is one of the most notable in issues, and it's basically that the folks that are creating these SPACs, they get a very big payout once these SPACs are able to complete a deal, and really any deal. It's not necessarily tied to performance of that deal. So there are investment banks around the world that are really trying to um, work with investors, work with the SPAC sponsors, and work with companies to make those payouts more aligned with what happens after you make a SPAC deal. So um, future performance rather than just incentivizing you know, these black blank-chain companies to do a deal. And that narrative is beginning to shift in Europe. You're starting to see um, SPACs coming to market that are that are much more evenly balanced. Can you just walk me through whether or not actually Europe may end up taking the lead here? Yeah, that's a great question. And it does come down to the rules in, in great part. That's what this hearing is really about. It's not changing necessarily and fundamentally the nature of a SPAC. What it's saying, what, what investors are saying, the ones that are testifying and the ones that are, uh, and lawmakers, they're just trying to get them to disclose more about how the SPAC may perform in the future and potentially how much is paid to investors at the end of the day. 
So a lot of this is just simply around disclosure and not so much around what you're saying, Guy, which is to make sure that the structure actually changes itself Mm -hmm. to be more attractive for investors and the companies that are selling to SPAC. So the disclosure issue is a real one, and it will impact U.S. and European investment banks at the end of the day. So I get the disclosure part, but let's also talk about the structure part, because it does seem like Europe is changing some of the structure versus SPACs in the U.S., we are seeing a little bit of a rise in, in European SPACs. Walk us through that. Yeah, so that, that whole thing that we were talking about, about um, you know, aligning performance to your payout, right? Uh, you know, very astute investors will look at that and say, okay, wait a minute. At the, at, if I invest in a SPAC right now that's doing a deal, why am I getting diluted so much? <laughs> like at the end of the day, it's, you know, why is it that the sponsor gets so much money just for doing a deal? It's almost as simple as that, Alex. Right, you get paid for simply doing the deal uh, in many of the current SPAC structures. So the idea of really changing that structure, where are some of that? Where the Evercore, Morgan Stanley, they are talking to both investors who are creating SPACs as well as investors who will invest in them to kind of create new models. But again, this is completely ad hoc. This is yeah. whatever sponsor and whatever investment bank will plan to do that one by one. Right now, the majority of the firms that you're seeing out there are still getting kind of that 20% promote, which is the payout you get when you do a SPAC deal, rather than having some sort of a layered structure where you're paid out over time or you're paid out relative to the performance of how the company does. You know, That's so weird. What a shocker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Paid for what the company does. What? Crazy. I know. Shocker. And that's how, you know, if you're a CEO of a company, for example, that's how you would get paid. You would have some sort of payout. And that's the best way to think about it. The sponsors of these facts get more kind of a CEO compensation almost where yeah. it is attached to targets. Shanali, we're going to leave it there. Look forward to the coverage of the events. Shanali Basak, our Wall Street reporter. Up next, we're going to hear from Alex and my conversation with Michael Colglazer. He is the Virgin Galactic CEO. I think he was quite blown away by what happened over the weekend. Um, Virgin Galactic putting uh, another aircraft into uh, suborbit. Um, I think he was really surprised about how graceful the whole process was. We're going to hear from him in a moment. And Alex's concerns about going into space. Don't want to do it. Can't do it. Freaks me out. Guys all in. Totally. Yeah. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. It's time we uh, took you a little out of your comfort zone. Virgin Galactic, the company founded by billionaire Richard Branson, conducting a test flight uh, for its space vehicle this weekend. First time it's done that in more than two years. Alex and I caught up with Michael Colglazer. He's Virgin Galactic's CEO to talk about how it went. This was my first uh, space flight that I had a chance to watch since joining the company. And I knew what to expect. I knew everything about it we were trying. But the responses and the words I used uh, when I called my family afterwards were different than I expected. It was beautiful. Uh, Just watching it go was elegant. And when the ship is actually in space, it is graceful in the way it moves. And so it's very different words than I would have guessed in that regard. But we had three big points we were trying to uh, do in this test flight. The first was to test a new set of digital controllers that we have for the pilots, give them tighter steering. 
Uh, it worked flawlessly. Uh, it went really as a curve, just straight up into space and a beautiful flight. Second thing we were doing was to ensure that we had the electromagnetic interference issue that had delayed us uh, from earlier in the year. And uh, all the work that we had done on that completely eliminated that problem for us. And then finally, we collected data that we sent over to the FAA. Uh, and we believe that will give us uh, a great opportunity for them to analyze it and then hopefully clear our license for commercial flight. So all in all, just a beautiful day. So what's the journey between now and that point, that license being achieved? What needs to happen? When's the next flight? What, is that ne what sort of milestones does that next flight have to achieve? Sure. Well, this was our, our third flight to space with humans, uh, the first from the state of New Mexico, uh, which is a beautiful, beautiful place to look back down upon the planet. And what follows next, we have three more flights in our test flight program. Uh, our next one will come up with a full crew of mission specialists in the back, in addition to our two pilots. Uh, that one will be followed with a repeat, but we're asking our founder, Richard Branson, to come on and really test the private astronaut experience for us. We think who better to do that. And both of those we expect to happen this summer. And then that will be followed by our final test flight that's planned with the Italian Air Force, really showcasing how our space systems used for microgravity science research, as well as professional astronaut training. And uh, we think that will likely happen right. late summer, early fall. So let's get to that in terms of the pre-flight training. So Guy and I were going back and forth on this. How healthy do you have to be? What kind of training does there have to be uh, for a regular person to eventually book a flight on this? So what's really unique about Virgin Galactic is we take the first 50,000 feet or so uh, with the airplane technology. So we take off horizontally on our mothership, climbs out to 40, 45, 50,000 feet. And then from there, uh, the spaceship drops and then rockets up. So it's powerful, uh, but reasonably smooth because we've gone through the heaviest part of the atmosphere, just like you would in a commercial airliner. Uh, it's really important to stay fit in general, uh, but it's not something that needs unique you know, years and years of training. So we, we recommend people stay flexible because they want to be moving around in a weightless environment and kind of looking out all the windows. Um, but generally, we think as long as people are taking care of themselves, lots and lots and lots of people will be able to go with us. Okay. So not much training. Alex was concerned that I was getting a little bit old. Maybe, I was worried. Maybe it's something I, was I worried. think about. Let's talk about price. In mm. terms of this venture going forward, Michael, this is a question that I'm surprised I'm asking, but I guess we've got to think about it going forward. What is the path to profitability? When do you think this is profitable? Once it starts getting up and running and you kind of get through the initial kind of phase on this and this becomes more commonplace, are you going to be making money off this? When do you think you're going to be making money off this? Well, the first thing we're needing to do, obviously, finish this test flight program and then move into commercial service. And we believe this is going to be a supply constrained business for quite some time. The demand of this uh, is going to be well out in front of our ability to build and scale the fleet up for a while. And as such, it will be reasonably expensive as it goes forward. Our previous uh, 600 people generally had a price around 250,000 each. We have not announced what our pricing will be going forward. Uh, we said it will be uh, higher in the beginning. Uh, we do see pricing of uh, around $600,000 per seat equivalent for our microgravity research flights. Uh, but again, we have not put pricing out for the private astronaut market. Um, but from that, I think you'll see the unit economics of this very compelling. Uh, so we expect to have very solid margins 
And what we're really then trying to do is scale our fleet up. Uh, we've been working in an R&D and prototyping phase for years, doing something really hard. We're now pivoting to the manufacturing phase to build the fleet. So, Michael, is the goal to that to get more seats at a higher price, or is the goal to that to get scale, to get regular people like Guy and I to get up there at cheaper prices? Uh, it is to get you, Guy, and thousands and tens of thousands of people like you up into space. So we'll be building a fleet of vehicles, working to turn them quickly with a fleet of motherships to go with it. And we do want to be able to eventually bring these price points down so that more and more people have access into space. So it's complicated at the beginning, and most industries at the beginning start out on the higher side of the prices, but we do expect to be able to bring those down over time. It will still be a very profitable business model, but um, Alex and Guy, I've, I know who to call when you're ready. Yeah, not me. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, so, <laughs> so that was the CEO of uh, Virgin Galactic, uh, Michael Colglazer. But, you know, I think your your question was quite relevant because, from my mind, how many repeat people are going to go in space if you can't get the price down to a like I don't know like what's reasonable, five hundred dollars, thousand dollars? Like if you're not going to get the price well, down, he's like talking that, about he's talking about tens of thousands of people going into space, right? But like then how many times is a billionaire going to go up or you have to get it down to a couple hundred bucks, right? Well, that, no, How does that happen? Ma- yeah, maybe not a hundred, couple of hundred, but but certainly six hundred thousand, which is what he was talking about, it is going to be restricted for most people I would uh, imagine. Yeah. Um, so you clearly need to get the price point down um, but if they can scale the business maybe they can do that I hmm. how elastic is demand I do, do we come down to a hundred thousand how much does that open the market up to um, fifty thousand yeah it'd be interesting to see how the unit economics work over the next few years but I would have thought that they, they, they are looking at pretty solid demand as this process unfurls I would have thought well, that, also, that that is the kind of that's how it's going to work. All, all, all you show is you know your rocket in space and say you can go see that and like this the stock's going to go up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like like, like that, that's as basic if you're a shareholder as that's going to be. Yeah, I think shareholders were pretty happy with what they saw. I, I think it's going to be a huge market for everybody. Anyway, this is the cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Happy Monday, everybody. A mushy Monday is what uh, I called it in the beginning of the show uh, on television. I'm Alex Steele with Guy Johnson over in New York. So uh, a couple things happening in the markets. Um, You're just seeing tech move higher. You're seeing yields move lower. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what that is. Bitcoin also calming down after a very whippy weekend. Elon Musk weighing in yet again on Twitter as to the fiat versus cryptocurrency debate. He obviously chose crypto. Um, You also had metals. We'll talk about this in a second. We're under pressure from China. That now has alleviated somewhat. But here's something interesting guy, get this. Theater stocks like AMC are on the move because apparently you had five nine. I don't know what this movie is, but that did really know. well. Like okay. the Peter Rabbit thing. Okay, fine, but F nine. Do we know what this is? I have no idea. But oh, to be honest, I haven't really been paying attention. Fast and Furious franchise oh, fa- installment. Fast and Furious nine. Oh, okay, that makes more sense. You didn't know that, did you? The producer just told you that. No, 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 no. I actually just read it. I, mean, I didn't oh, you, know that, but I actually just read it. it. You kidding? Tim's okay. not even here anymore. He's out getting lunch or something. Who knows? Okay. Um, 
So that's what's happening in the market. Uh, let's go ahead and get other news uh, from Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Alex. Still, here's what's going on. Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey is setting out further concerns about digital currencies, saying there's a danger of, quote, getting carried away with financial innovation. In response to questions in the Treasury Committee in Parliament today, Bailey said, quote, I don't want to be seen as a Luddite, but I'm skeptical about crypto assets, frankly, because they are dangerous and there's huge enthusiasm. He said that in general, financial innovation is good for the economy, but investors need to maintain vigilance about the underlying assets they create. Western outrage growing today in the European Union, threatening more sanctions over the forced diversion over the weekend of a plane to Belarus in order to arrest an opposition journalist in a dramatic gambit that some said amounted to state terrorism or sheer piracy. NatWest Group Securities Unit planning to close its branch in Madrid and scale back its Milan operations as the British lender continues a multi-year effort to shrink its investment bank. And Singapore has approved a breath test designed to detect COVID-19 and give accurate results within a minute. The breath tonics test has so far undergone three clinical trials and achieved a sensitivity of 93% and specificity of 95% in one early Singapore-based pilot study that involved 180 patients. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Thanks, Charlie. There's a lot of tongue twisters in there. They Specificity. Really <laughs> the, what was the other? The, yeah. Anyway, uh, good stuff. Um, so something else that also what I think is very interesting. Can I just can I yeah? just say yeah. I, I've just watched the trailer for F9. It does look quite similar to some of the other movies they've made. Really, in that, genre. that is completely surprising and unpredicted. I, the fact that you get to nine probably tells you everything you need yeah, to know. Yeah, but they keep making money. That's the yeah. crazy thing. Um, I don't Peter know. Peter Rabbit. It's the way to go. I'm still. I, like I said, I'm thinking about going to a movie this weekend, but I gotta tell you, none of those things seem appealing to me. I'm really waiting. You don't want to go see Peter Rabbit? Well, no, I, I, I'm trying to get a date night going here, so my, okay. my my parents will be up with us in Massachusetts with my daughter, so it feels like a prime time to like sneak Not out to for watch a movie. Peter Rabbit. And it doesn't feel like Peter Rabbit's gonna fit that bill, or I, no, but you don't want to go to the movies. I, if you're gonna go to the movies on date nights, I've never really understood this. Basically, you sit side by side, you don't really have a conversation. Date night should involve sitting across from each other. <laughs> And that's the way to go. Um, but you've been married. Movie night's perfect. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's prime date night. Um, you, you get the points for dressing up and like hanging out. You can go get a cocktail after, although the Berkshires doesn't really have a lot of that. Or you can sit and have a cocktail in the movie, ah, and then you can talk different... about the movie after. Okay. And that counts. Peter Rabbit. I think it's a great idea. Um, Okay, so before we got off track, I was talking about China and commodities. Um, so basically, China continues to try and crack down um, on metal prices, basically calling a bunch of people into their like top metal producers. They were called to a meeting in Beijing, and they said, look, you cannot hoard, you cannot price manipulate anything, uh, you can't do anything that's going to trip up the market and make higher prices. And you know what? It didn't really work long term. That's because, because China previously kind of controlled this market because it was the biggest consumer. And it's still, by far and away, I guess, probably the biggest consumer, 50% of the market. But this is being driven elsewhere. And this is about electrification. And this is about the huge physical demand for stuff hmm. in Europe and the United States. But I did think so it was... So China, China doesn't have the influence it, it once did. But I did think it was interesting. We talked to uh, Max Layton over at City, And he doesn't think that the decarbonization theme is priced in at all. 
No, he's, he, he sees like big things still to come, which in theory should help some of the London miners, which didn't have a great day mm-hmm. today um, because of what's been happening. But I think what you probably are going to get is some quite a lot of volatility around this. Yes, as we try and figure out um, all of that. And a big part of that is obviously supply, too. That's been hurt by COVID. But also there's a lot more unionization issues, like yeah. in Chile, for example. Also, if, if we're talking like $30,000 a ton, like all those countries are going to want to get a piece of that, yeah, which ex- then exactly. winds up hurting development. So it's it's not just a And I know, story. yeah, miners, mines take a long time to bring on stream. They mm-hmm. do. I, you, it's not like a fracking, which you can do relatively quickly. It takes a long time to get mines on stream. But nevertheless... There are going to be mines that come on stream if you start to see those kinds of prices. If the prices get really jacked up, it's going to change the unit economics. It's going to change everybody's perception of kind of how this industry works. Because at the moment, everything's about, oh, we've got to be disciplined. We've got to return money to shareholders. We can't be going out and doing big projects. Well, but, I but, wonder but. how much that lasts in a world where copper prices get jacked up. But I think that the ESG factor is also going to complicate things because a lot of the the okay, stuff how, that are how do you how do you electrify the world's economy and and not have more copper no, no, I, I'm, this bit I'm not i don't you understand don't. i'm just i'm just suggesting that perhaps developing even with higher prices is still going to be challenging because you're going to have a lot more uh, eyes on the social part of the situation sure and if you look at cobalt for example it's mostly mined in the drc where you're going to run into some serious issues there in terms of how you how you do that more responsibly it's going to take longer and cost more so you're going to need you a are, higher cost curve but but you you can either you can either decarbonize the planet or you could say we don't want to dig more stuff out of the ground. I, it, at the moment, it feels like it's one or the other at the moment because we're going to need a lot more copper. As you say, battery technology is going to have to change. We're certainly going to need uh, a, a lot more of these metals. I, there are plenty of these metals in the United States. They just haven't mined them yet, which I think mm-hmm. is super smart mm-hmm. because they're basically getting China to mine it all and then the US, when it really needs it, is going to say, we got it in the backyard. But but I don't, I don't understand how you get both. those two things are going to interact. Well, but it's exactly the same thing as they do with the oil community, where it's like, we don't want any stuff. We don't want oil. We don't want natural gas. IEA says, like, we don't need any more field development. Yeah. But then, like, every oil company is like, we hear you, dude, but, like, we're, how are you going to power your car? Like, not everyone's going to have an EV in five years. So, like, you're going to need more development to be able to satisfy yeah, that. Yeah, but, that, but, that but that's a runoff industry for the time being. I, yes. I appreciate what you yeah, say yeah, about yeah. the car. But, like, the UK, we're done with it. You, you won't be able to buy an electric car. So, if you buy, go buy a car right now... It has to be electric? No, 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 not yet. But in a okay. few years' time, we're mm-hmm. five years away from that happening, maybe a little bit longer. I think it's, what, 2030 now. Maybe not even that long. And but that yeah, by the, end, by the end of the decade, you will not be able to buy a combustion energy car in the UK. And that's, that's like, but, that's why, but it takes about the same amount of time to develop a mine. But there's going to be people that have cars that are going to need diesel. For example, like sure. gasoline. Like, they're not going to all but, of a sudden have none of but, that there. No, but it's going to be a market that's in runoff from, yes. a, from a transportation point of view. And, and between now and then, that market's going to grow as well. And let's say the average life of a car is, I don't know, you've got, a, you've got one right now. How old is it? Seven oh, years old? Uh, no, ours is like 13. Okay, that's special. Um, like the, the, the last time we got it fixed, the guy's like, yeah, this car's yeah. going to break. <laughs> yeah, soon. <laughs> like um, imminently. <laughs> but but I, most people run their cars kind of seven, eight, nine years. years. That's the kind of time frame we're talking about. Should I get anyway. an EV? Pretty choice at the moment. How far do you want to go? Far. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. Euro dollar 
Trading back north of 122 today, 122.09. It's been climbing really uh, since the uh, the beginning of the month um, and a little bit be- sort of beyond that. Um, the question is, are we starting to reach the limits of that? Is the dollar going to continue to weaken from here? What's the next big catalyst? Jane Foley, Rabobank head of FX Strategy, joined Alex and I a little bit earlier. The word transitory, for instance, it may have been adopted mostly by the Fed, but it's also been used, as as you just said, by the Bank of England. It was used in their minutes last time around. It's also been used by central banks such as Norway. So it really is a common theme. And and it's not surprising because we will be seeing these these base effects uh, coming through. And of course, a lot of central banks, uh, certainly in the G10, really focused on wage inflation. And of course, the G10 have had such a poor record with with wage inflation. They're not really expecting a a significant structural shift in, in in the near term for for wages to suddenly pop higher when they haven't done uh, for so long. So I think for the markets and and in trying to work out, uh, you know, which currencies are going to move on the back of central banks, I think the markets are trying to determine, well, which central banks can move first. So which one do you think, Jane? The Bank of England's got quite a lot of history in terms of looking through spikes in inflation. We've seen that relatively recently. What about the Fed? Well, I, I think we've got to keep coming back to the Fed. I mean, we know it's not going to be the Bank of Japan. We know it's not going to be the Swiss National Bank. Now, it's quite interesting right now that uh, the markets are focusing on that <coughs> excuse me, that ECB meeting on, on, on June the 10th. Mm. Uh, that's getting a, a, a lot of attention. You know, is there going to be tapering there? Is there not? And, and I think that's one of the reasons, of course, that the euro has been really well supported uh, recently. But come June the 10th, I think it's quite likely that we will get disappointed appointments. We heard Lagarde on Friday saying that she thinks it's too soon to be talking mm-hmm. this way. So from that point of view, I think we might get pushed back there and then attention is going to swing back to that Fed meeting later on in June. So does that mean that the dollar downside is done? Well, I, I don't think it's done necessarily in the short term. We've still got to get to June the 10th. We've still got the speculation that the, the, the Eurozone or the, the Europe is going to have a really good uh, H2 or second half of the year because of the vaccine rollout is, is catching up. So there's a lot of speculation like that really uh, um, supporting the, the euro right now. And, and of course, the US central bank has really been quite successful in pushing back against inflation talk. Again, uh, we've had more comments uh, today. So from that point of view, I think we've still got this tug of war going on in the markets about inflation. Is it going to be in the US, as the Fed says not? We've still got this debate really coming through. And we could have some choppy conditions because of that. But I think ultimately, when we talk about the inflation debate, I think it will be about the US and it will be about the, the Fed. It's just I think we might have to wait a few months until maybe that Jackson Hole meeting to, to get a little bit more traction on this debate. Where do you think the line of the sand is for the ECB, though? 122 used to be the number. Didn't they be comfortable with 125? Well, again, I, you know, I think most people would, would say this. It depends on the pace. So if we were to suddenly you know, pick up the, the pace and moving towards 125 pretty rapidly, that would put the frighteners up, I, I think, various members of the ECB, certainly uh, Philip Lane. Uh, but I, I think we, you know, we've been up 122. We've been below 122. We've been above 122. At these sorts of levels, I, I, I don't think there's necessarily the incentive for them to use up some ammunition. It will be a verbal ammunition and, and say anything against it. But they will be watching at the, the pace. But I think a steady exchange rate will will certainly keep their nerves a little bit calmed for now. Well, and then to pivot off of that as well, like what yields can the ECB not seem to handle? I mean, I know that, you know, you're the FX individual, but the idea that if we're nearing 0% in the Bund, like at what point do we hit that kind of resistance, which then we'll have that feedback on the currency? 
Again, I think it's part of the same debate, certainly because of the yields move that the currencies like to move. So this is really, really entwined. And again, it comes back to the pace of those movements. Now, if you can argue, well, look, yields are rising because the, the, the market's anticipating a, a better outlook for the economy. That's a good thing. Uh, if this is done in, in a calmer, contained manner, if the fundamental data uh, really do acknowledge this this uptick, uh, then, then, then that's going to be okay. But if we suddenly sort of rush here, if we see you know big sell-off in, in peripheral bonds, for instance, that's the sort of conditions that the ECB just won't like. Jane Foley joining Alex and myself a little bit earlier on. Jane, of course, Rabobank's head of FX strategy. Uh, up next, we are going to be talking Bitcoin. Wow, what a weekend. Another roller coaster ride uh, for the, uh, the crypto space. Where do we this go keeps from happening. Here? Are we going to have to start doing programming on the weekend? Uh, I think that there are people better qualified than us to be doing that. <laughs> There's a name that springs to mind. Joe Weisenthal, I think, would be perfect for that gig. He's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. I think Bitcoin's greatest risk is its success. The more we create savings in it, the more you might say, I'd rather have Bitcoin than the bond. Personally, I'd rather have Bitcoin than a bond. And then the more that happens, then it goes into Bitcoin and it doesn't go into credit and then they lose control of it. So, yeah, that's a risk. That was Ray Dalio uh, speaking earlier, Bridgewater uh, Co. CIO, talking about Bitcoin, also calling, you know, cash is trash. Well, joining us now for more uh, is Joe Weisenthal. He has a lot of titles here at Bloomberg, but the one we're going to use is the co-host of Odd Lots. Um, Hey, Joe I really liked your piece. So there's a column that says, you know, five things to watch today. Yeah, yeah. And Joe typically writes the end piece to that. It's like a stream of consciousness for Joe, which if you know <laughs> Joe is actually pretty interesting. And I was really interested in your Bitcoin like frame of mind. Yeah. In, in particular, like we just talked about green Bitcoin, yeah. then like a shortage with semis and how that could affect Bitcoin. Yeah, like, yeah. What are you thinking? You know, look, I think um, as Bitcoin has grown, uh, people are – there's more and more scrutiny about the computational cost of securing the network. And this is a unavoidable fact about Bitcoin itself. It's how it works. The security of the network, because it's decentralized, essentially imposes on the people who get to sort of determine the network big uh, costs, both in the form of electricity and hardware – uh, uh, the ability to mine and control the network. This is how secure it is. But people are wondering, like, is this worth it? Is this bad? Is this somehow, is this bad for the environment? And this level of scrutiny is only going to grow as uh, as Bitcoin grows, basically. And I think uh, we're, we've been seeing a lot of that in the last several is weeks gonna, or months. Is it going to stop Bitcoin growing? No, I don't think it's going to stop Bitcoin from growing. But look, I mean, I think there, in the world of Bitcoin, there's a lot of interest in, say, uh, 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 better reg- uh, improving the regulatory environment for it, the creation of more vehicles that allow people to invest in it with an ETF. And I think that's something on a lot of people's minds. And when you have someone like Elon, who is like a pretty like forward thinker in many ways, coming out and saying, you know what? I'm into all this stuff, but this is a lot of electricity consumption, even for me, then I don't think that sort of like helps the broader goals. What else are you looking at um, in terms of Bitcoin, Joe? Sure. Um, in particular, Guy and I talked a lot about, oh, this volatility is going to be tough for you know the asset managers to want to get into Bitcoin, yeah. et cetera. Are, are, are we mistaken? 
No, I mean, I think that's totally true. I mean, look, there's when people talk about either Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, people uh, talk a lot about use cases or what is the use case. But look, the pretty simple fact is the main reason people want to invest in uh, cryptocurrencies is because a bunch of people have gotten rich really fast and nothing attracts uh, nothing attracts new money like a line going up on a chart. It's simple. And this is not just a Bitcoin thing. It's anything. People love making money. But if volatility hits and it's sustained, then one of the big selling points goes away. And we see really sharp Bitcoin increases like we saw in 2017. And then we see very long drawdowns because when the line isn't going up, people are like, well, what's the point? I thought the point was to make money. Exactly. Yeah, it's a momentum trade. Um, very much so. In terms of the price action, I I saw you. I think it was you drawing the comparison with 2017. Does it? I, the the, the yeah. chart looks different, but it, there are similarities. Yeah, exactly right. I think um, you know it's it's not a perfectly similar chart, but I do think there are some uh, interesting similarities. You know, I, uh, the, in 2017, the chart peaked the day before the CME futures launched. This time around, the chart peaked the day of the Coinbase IPO. Very similar sort of like milestones and in institutional adoption. You also have this phenomenon where Bitcoin peaks prior to some of the alternative, the altcoins peak, which I think sort of it speaks to the sort of, I guess I would say the greed cycle, which is that Bitcoin starts slowing down and then people go further and further out on the risk spectrum. And so there are similarities there. So I don't know if this is the end of this cycle, but I think there are a couple of things that remind me of the end of 2017 here. What I also thought was interesting is, and this is, my, this is a Joe line, Joe, Bitcoin uh, should learn something from the refrigerator industry. Yeah. What did that mean? Huh. Well, basically, <laughs> look, like you don't see people going around and saying like, Oh, look at all the electricity use that refri- re- electricity use that refrigerators use, right? Like you never hear that conversation, and there's a reason for that, which is that people uh, generally accept that food preservation is good, right? Like we think that it's good to preserve food, and very uh, little dispute about that. This is ultimately what Bitcoin has to accomplish: is can it convince more people that this is a good thing? And if the people thought that Bitcoin was a good thing in the world, then people wouldn't question yeah. the electricity consumption because that's just how it works. A so good thing or a useful thing. A good thing or a useful thing or something like that. So I think well, that ultimately it has no, to, but 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 actually that's, that's a genuine on, question, yeah. Joe. Which is, I, Bitcoin can be a good thing. I we like the idea of decentralized currencies. We right. like the idea of kind of something to lean in on the fiat currency story. Yeah. But there needs to be a use for it. So it can be a good thing, but it does it, it. It needs to be a useful thing. Refrigerators are useful. Yeah, it's also good. I mean, I don't. I think in, by and large, it's like ultimately when you accept that, say, um, the Bitcoin itself is something that is useful or valuable, then you accept that the uh, the energy consumption required to secure the network is the price that you pay for that, and you don't think you know you think it's worthwhile. Can it be and done more cheaply? Sorry? Can well, it be done this is a, perhaps, and there are other models, and so Ethereum is ostensibly switching to a model that is going to be less computationally and less electricity consumptive. It's debatable, and there are a lot of people who dispute whether it's as secure without that. There are other things. So, for example, there's a cryptocurrency, and I kind of hinted at this in my write-up this morning, called Chia, which explicitly aims to be the green currency without much... Um, 
without much electricity consumption, but it's mined using hard drives, and the price of hard drives is soaring in China. And in fact, you can't even get a typical yeah. like Western digital hard drive on, like, say, JD.com right now. So have you just transferred what was electri- uh, resource usage from electricity into resource usage into the building of hard drives? It's not obvious that there is some magic bullet to no, make and, things and, more secure. And you can't get anything 100 percent green. Like, it's just it's just it's just not literally possible, like unless because you, you have to source it from somewhere and sourcing it is going to cost something. Um, Joe, really great. I really appreciate you taking the time today. It was a really fun column. Joe Weisenthal, uh, co-host of Odd Lots podcast. But uh, I do think that if you're waiting to find a Bitcoin that's green or I don't know. Well, I am. As you say, I, there is a cost to generating fiat currency as well. A debate for another day. Maybe. I don't know. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg.